So last Sunday, we uh, began our series in the book of Exodus, and we're titling this whole series, uh, The Stories That Shape Us. These narratives in the Hebrew Scriptures tell the story of God and His people, and they point to a climax in history, and that climax, of course, we believe is Jesus the Christ Himself. These stories of creation and covenant, sin and forgiveness, oppression and exodus, these are the same stories that Jesus Himself Uh, was fed a steady diet of when he was a kid. They shaped the way he thought and the way he did ministry. And so for the next few months, we are going to be living in the story of God as we find it in the book of Exodus. Now, as I was thinking about uh, the story that we're going to go over this evening, I kept thinking of a superhero tech. I often think of superhero stuff. If you go through the comic books and and graphic novels and sci-fi films and all that stuff. There are literally thousands and thousands of different superheroes out there, men and women, boys and girls. Maybe one of the more famous ones is Superman, of course, and I've never really found Superman all that relatable. He's too perfect. He's too nice. And his biggest problem as a student in in school is like, oh, I run too fast, so I've got to like slow down so people don't find out I'm Superman. Like, wow, that's really tough childhood, you know. When I was a kid, now I, I had a bigger aspirations. I wanted to be a Jedi Knight. No joke. When I was eight or nine years old, I can't remember, it's all fuzzy, but that summer between eight and nine around there, my friend Nick and I were training to be Jedi Knights. And we knew that with enough devotion and practice, we could get there. We spent a whole Saturday in the woods behind my house finding the perfect lightsabers. Of course, they're alder branches, but we cut them and made them the right length. And, and then almost every uh, day after, during the summer, we would take turns throwing rocks at each other and pine cones and dirt clods were really cool because they would explode when you deflect them. Awesome. All this was cool. We were on our way to becoming Jedis. And I knew as a young adult, I would eventually become a Jedi until George Lucas ruined my dream when he came out with the Gnostic prequels to Star Wars and introduced this lame idea of midi-chlorids. You know what these are? These little things that live inside our bodies that apparently you're either born with or not. And if you have a lot of them, you can become a Jedi and harness the force. But if you're not born with them, well, then you're out of luck. You can never be a Jedi. And maybe that's why when Nick and I got to the place where we were blindfolded and throwing rocks at each other, we kept either crying or fighting each other. (laughs) My point is that some heroes out there in literature, on film, are much more realistic than others. But all the big-name ones, they're not realistic. They're not people we can really be like. They're special in a way that we can never be. We can respect them, but we can't be like them. The heroes I like are the ones that are more like me, the ones that are more like you, the ones that are more believable. One might think of the story of The Hobbit, in which Bilbo Baggins gets caught up in a narrative that's way bigger than himself. It's a a story of how an ordinary person or hobbit put in extraordinary circumstances becomes an extraordinary person. Bilbo is transformed from a comfort-seeking, conservative, rather boring hobbit into a person of great courage. He is the hero for the common person. He isn't born with exceptional wit or strength or exceptional pedigree, but he makes choices that end up surprising himself and other people. And in the end, this rather insignificant, rather short person changes the course of the narrative world that he's living in, Middle-earth. Tonight's story in the book of Exodus is a little bit like that. Let me set the scene for you. Exodus begins, of course, where Genesis begins. Sorry. 
Exodus begins where Genesis ends. And we learn that an undetermined amount of time has passed since the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And in that undetermined amount of time, we know that Joseph and all of his brothers have since died. But God has been with their descendants, not only with them in a nice, quaint way, but blessing them richly, such that these descendants of Joseph and his brothers have been thriving and multiplying all over the land of Egypt. All they need now is to receive the land that God had promised them. The time in which the Israelites were thriving in Egypt is most likely the same time that Egypt's monarchy was weak. Foreigners, like Israelites, were allowed during this time period to have positions of leadership, and they were influential in government issues. But all this changed when Amos I took power. Amos I was a pure-blood Egyptian, and when he took power, he systematically cleansed all the governments and all the positions of power of any foreigners. Those kings who followed Amos I also maintained a xenophobic prejudice against outsiders. And this is the type of policy and politic that's reflected in our story this evening. Now the story in Exodus 1 begins with the king of Egypt making Israelite men slaves of the state. They were forced to join into this legion of brickmakers, a most humiliating and exhausting form of work. And Pharaoh's intent in this seems to be twofold. One is to reduce the population of Israelites by killing off some of their men through hard labor, by separating them from their families so they physically can't make more families. And the other thing is, hey, while I've got all these guys as slaves, I might as well fortify my northern positions. And so he has them build the cities of Pithom and Ramses, which are described as store cities, cities of fortified walls, grain stores, and military stores, where they have a garrison at these forward posts. Now, the ironic thing is that the more that Pharaoh oppressed the men of Israel and the people of Israel, the more God just continues to bless them. The more they multiplied until the point where the Israelites weren't viewed by Pharaoh as a nuisance or a minor threat. He now sees them as a threat to national security. We use terms like that, don't we, in the news? This is exactly where we pick up the story in Exodus 1 starting in verse 15 through 22. Please stand as we read this story. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the stones, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very numerous. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born 
you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Lord, thank you for this word. Help us, Lord, especially those who have heard this over and over again, who have read these stories, maybe even to their children or heard them from Sunday school. Help us to see the horror of what's really being said here. And help us to see your faithfulness in the example of these two women who are courageous for you, who fear you above all else, and are blessed. Lord, open our minds and our hearts to receive your word. Amen. You may be seated. What a weird story. I mean, how does that make it in the Bible? You could say that about a lot of stories. Uh, But it's especially a weird story from the perspective of us, like 21st century Western people. Uh, To me, if I was writing a history, which obviously I wasn't there, uh, it's, it's an incomplete story. Think if you were a historian and you wrote this account of the situation, there's all these questions you'd want to know. Like, what were the characters thinking? What were their families like? What were the customs of midwifery back then? Why kill all the males and not the females? That seems kind of dumb. And is it okay to lie now because God seems to bless them after they sell this lie? It's frustrating. At least it's frustrating for those of us who are asking those types of questions. But maybe, and let me suggest this gently, maybe we're asking the wrong types of questions from a text like this. The way the story is, uh, is written would not have been frustrating to its original audience. Uh, I say that on pretty good authority because you can look at this time period and see all the kinds of stories that come out, and they're all like this. They're all written as something we might call an epic poem or a myth, mythological story, which, by the way, has nothing to say about the historicity of the story. Jews and Christians alike believe all of these things happened, but the details in the story are left out so that the important things rise to the surface. So remember, as we approach this text, that Exodus is primarily a theological text, not a scientific text, and not a historical text. In other words, it's not trying to answer the question, I wonder what people thought about this king, or I wonder how people used to have kids back then. Did they get epidurals, or, you know, how how did that work out? It's trying to answer the question of, who is God? What has he done in in the, the lives of his people, and what does that mean for you and I? And another thing to remember is that the first readers of this story did not hear the story from the fir- for the first time by reading it. This stuff had been alive in oral tradition, passed down generation to generation until it was finally penned, put to paper. So they're reading this as people who are already familiar with the story. Nothing new. So what I'm going to do is first help us to fill in some of the facts that would have maybe been obvious to an ancient reader but are far removed from us. Then I want to look at the theological implications. What is this telling us about God? What is this telling us about who we are? And how does this story shape our story? In the ancient world, the family unit was the most important structure in any society. I know we think that about ourselves. 
<laughs> we don't even come close, most of us. Most of our family units don't come close to the type of, uh, of unity, of importance of an ancient Near Eastern family. Without a name in the ancient Near East, you were nothing. Here's where I kind of see a difference. I, I'm a dad of three daughters, and everyone, well, not everyone, some people say, you know, try for that fourth and have a boy. You know, how are you going to pass your, your name down? I can't handle three. I don't think I'm having four. And honestly, I'm not that worried if, like, the Eltrich name doesn't work out. Like, my prayer is that my girls will marry great guys, and I'll be invested in their lives, and go for it. Like, it's not the end of the world if the name dies out because I didn't have a boy, right? In this culture, the name was everything. So if you want to stamp out an entire people, you get rid of the boys. You get rid of the boys because they carry the name. If you get rid of the men in a society, then the women have to intermarry with other nations, like Egyptians, and they begin to take their names on, and the Israelite names are done. That's one of the tactics here of the Pharaoh. Second, and this is ironic, the Pharaoh feared the men, that's why he has the boys killed, because the men are the national leaders, they're the religious leaders, and they are the warriors, Take out the male babies, and there goes any potential of Israel rising up in rebellion. Now, the irony of this story, of course, is that it's two women, not men, who end up being very dangerous to the Pharaoh. And next week, teaser trailer, in chapter 2, it's the Pharaoh's own daughter who proves dangerous to him as she rescues Moses, who then leads this exodus. It's hilarious if you're an Israelite reader, and you're seeing that, you know, the Pharaoh's all just uptight about killing these boys off and it's these women he ought to be fearing so pharaoh devises this plan to subtly get rid of the israelite males by going through the hebrew midwives why probably because what time of life is more vulnerable and more guarded than the birth process in those days the husband was not there when the baby's born he's not in the same chamber the way it works is a midwife is there receives baby checks out if it's a boy or a girl and anything could happen from that point she could claim it's still birth or anything like that it's just the, simply the most vulnerable easy way uh, to subtly kill the male baby so he calls these two women in and isn't it odd that even if there's just a few thousand israelites at this time isn't it odd that he only calls two midwives like two midwives could not service the entire israelite population so many scholars believe that these two women, Shipra and Puak, were leaders of two guilds of midwives, two schools of midwives. So maybe Shua, uh, or Shipra and Puak are actually the heads of, of guilds of many midwives. And so he's getting them to come in and telling them what to then communicate to their peeps, and they're all supposed to be in cahoots together. We, we know there were guilds for about everything in the ancient world, from brickmakers to uh, stonemasons to... Uh, uh, people that copied manuscripts and midwives as well. Now, the Hebrew language is a bit confusing in verse 16. Your translation might refer to a birth stool. That is completely a gloss because people were confused about what to say and how to translate it into English. The wording literally refers to two stones, which could mean one of two things in my thinking. First, there are hieroglyphics that depicting Egyptian births where the mother is... Let's just talk about birth a little bit. Sorry if this is graphic. Uh, the mother's just squatting, right? So 
a lot of cultures do that. Um, and so she's squatting. And so the birthstones, there's an Egyptian text, actually, that refers to two bricks that a mother would stand upon. And that gives her a little more height, right? So that when you're squatting, the midwife can be right under there and receive babies so he or she doesn't hit the ground. So the idea is while the mothers are on the birthstones, midwife gets baby, sees the gender, does the deed. The other thing is a little more... Um, yeah, graphic. The stones could simply refer to the male parts, and you know what I'm talking about there. So um, they could see the stones and say, oh, it's a boy, and, and, and know what to do with it. The important thing is, whether it's two bricks on the ground or talking about a male part, the midwives did not do as Pharaoh told them. Now, when things don't go well, and the Pharaoh realizes what's going on, which, by the way, could take a long time, in, a, in, t- in years past without manufactured clothes, like there weren't like pink for girls and blue for boys. It's just like burlap. And kids all grew up their hair the same length. So unless you're catching these kids going to the bathroom, it might be six, seven years before you realize like, wait a minute, where all these boys come from? So it could have been some space of time before the Pharaoh realizes, oh my gosh, they're totally not carrying out my orders here. And he's furious. And he no longer cares about being subtle. And he orders all of his people, all those in charge of the areas of the Hebrews, to make sure the Israelite baby boys are thrown into the Nile River. It's a ruthless and horrifying plan. So what does this text have to say to us theologically? How can this weird story possibly shape our lives. First of all, you and I are descendants of this people who were enslaved by an evil king, and this story is filled with fun irony. I say we're descendants of these people because in Christ, we are grafted into this family. This history becomes part of our history. And what's awesome about this story is you notice that the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in this realm, He's not mentioned by name in this story. God's plan for his people is life, it's abundance, it's multiplication, it's blessing. Pharaoh, in this story, has set himself up as an adversary to God's plan. In the story, he thinks he's in charge, but in reality, he is a fool. He cannot stop God's plan. The most powerful man in the ancient world could not stop God's plan. Instead, the heroes of our story are two very common women. It's their names that we are talking about thousands of years later, Shipra and Puak. In fact, to their honor, let's say Shipra and Puak. We are seeing these women's names thousands of years later, way after this Pharaoh is forgotten in the narrative. These names are not special. They're not loaded with some theological meaning. I'm not going to bust out some Hebrew and say, well, actually, it means like angel of God or something like that. These names are actually, and the beauty of the story is, these names are as common as common can be. And how we know that is we've got lists of ancient Egyptian slave, household slave names. And these names are frequently on those types of lists. They might as well be named Ellen and Jeannie or, you know, just, just, how many Sarahs are in the world? Like my name in the 70s, common Chris. There's like a bazillion Chris's out there. It's as common as Chris in the 70s. Okay, so, so these are not like special 
Women, they're everyday. And that's part of the, the beauty of the story is that everyday women are the heroes and not Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks the men are the danger. But what we learn is that these common women are dangerous, not because they're powerful, but because they're obedient. They fear the Lord. Now, this does not mean that they're afraid of the Lord in some sense, like a drunken father coming home late at night who might lash out on them if everything's not in place or if they say the wrong thing. Fear of the Lord means revering God's ethic over any other ethic that contradicts it. And what's amazing is that these women do the right thing before the Ten Commandments even came out. They didn't have the scripture like we have the scripture. They had the oral stories of creation and fall and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. They had those stories. They knew of God. They knew enough to know the right thing. They knew that God is a God of life. He's a creator. And they knew that they were charged with a sacred and holy vocation of being at that wonderful intersection between the mystery of pregnancy, and the miracle of birth. You know, back then, people didn't know, oh, you know, there's a multiplication of cells going on right now, and the zygote becomes all that, you know. They, they didn't have Chad Thomas's back, Thompson's back then, Thomas's back then. We didn't have OBGYNs. It was a great mystery. And one thing that they were sure of is if you were pregnant with life, God put it there. And the midwife, her job was so precious to bring that mystery into the living, breathing world. These women, who were full of the sense of vocation, chose life. To take a new life, a life that God had made, was simply against their moral code. They had the fear of the Lord. They trusted that following His ways, even if it meant personal danger, was going to be better for them than caving under the pressure of worldly powers. Shipra and Puak demonstrate wisdom before the Proverbs were even written. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Their story reminds me of so many other stories. Think of Rahab keeping her word to the Israelite spies by hiding them from her people. It brings to mind Daniel, who refused to worship the pagan king, and for so doing, he was put in the lion's den. And when he's put in the lion's den, the angels come and and stop up their mouths, and when he's rescued from the den, that pagan king begins to acknowledge Yahweh, the living God, as a dominant deity. Shipra and Puak are the first in Scripture to resist through civil disobedience. When asked by Pharaoh, they didn't obey him. When they are commanded to deal out a death sentence, they said no. And they give him some line about how the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptians, how they're vigorous. Kind of a little jab, by the way, at the Egyptian women. They say they're vigorous, which means they're literally teeming with life. And whether or not Pharaoh actually believed their story, it's not given to us. We don't know what he actually thought about their story. But it doesn't matter. The theological statement here is this. The Pharaoh is acting as an angel of death. His plans are thwarted by God who has endowed his people with vigorous vitality. 
And for their resistance, God blesses these two midwives who were almost certainly childless themselves. He blesses them with families, with houses of their own descendants. They honored the God of life, and he literally gave them life. So, is lying justified? Is lying justified? One thing about this this text this evening is that this is not an, an ethics book, is it? This is not designed to be a training on ethics. But in a fallen world, we see people who live with the fear of the Lord, making choices that seem to be the lesser of two evils. We mentioned Rahab earlier. And after lying to her own countrymen in order to save the Israelite spies, she's later on listed in the New Testament in this list of faithful people. And even more importantly, Rahab, the prostitute who lied to her people to save the Israelite spies, is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Our minds may go to those who hid Jews from the Nazis, oftentimes lying to make that happen, or to those who helped slaves escape the Underground Railroad. A fallen world makes for ethical challenges. But if there's one thing clear that we learn, it's to participate in this world through holy resistance. Now, Collins is an engineer. I know there's some other people out there that work with mechanical things. Oftentimes, resistance is seen as a bad word. Designers of cars and planes, fluid mechanics, boats, try to reduce resistance for efficiency and speed. Relationships are often difficult when we have resistance between people. But in at least one way, we're called to live lives of resistance. Jesus says that we, his disciples, are the salt of the earth. Salt, used as a preservative uh, in the time before refrigeration, actually prevented, it resisted decay and destruction. In the, sh- in the same way, we learn from Shipra and Puak that at certain times, resistance against the world is right and necessary when the world's ways come into conflict with God's ways. Your resistance against some of those worldly powers can help preserve the world from decay and destruction. Obviously, there are so many easy things that we could talk about in terms of resistance. We could talk about human slavery, sex trafficking. We could talk about uh, corruption in government. We could talk about war. We could talk about ISIS. All of these things are things, it's, it's almost too easy. It's, it's low-picking, low-hanging fruit, right? I'm not going to talk about those things because part of the thing about talking with big picture resistance is that it's easy to go out and say, I voted the right way or I gave money to this organization and I'm doing my part. And I would say you're partially right. If you're doing some of those things, resisting in those big picture ways, that's great. That's necessary. But it's the personal areas of resistance that I want to talk about because it's easy when we leave things at the, the political level The resistance never gets too uncomfortable. But holy resistance is personal and it's costly. So let's talk about a few categories. What would it look like to live in the fear of the Lord rather than in the fear of the world in the area of economics? Will I see money as the world does? 
as the source of my security and comfort, as something that I should hoard greedily out of fear that I will run out? Or will I resist this view by being a person of generosity, even if it means not doing all of the things that I want to do or can afford to do? What if it means being generous to the point where I can't buy all the things that I want to buy or earned the right to buy? What if helping someone with my material goods means that I don't buy the best things for myself, but I buy good enough things so that other people can have good enough things? Will I see my money as my money to do what, uh, to do what I please with, or will I resist what my friends in the world are doing so that I can give my first 10% to God through tithing? Tithing and giving above and beyond to help others in need is a counter-cultural way of resistance. That's one of the areas that my friends think I'm craziest in, that I'm brainwashed, that I'm part of a, a system. It's countercultural. It's resistance. Will I think of my material possessions, my house, my car, my bike, my tools, my beloved books, my stuff? Will I think of those things as my own, my rights, my earnings, or will I hold them with an open hand? Being hospitable, sharing. And one of the stories I love when I was thinking about this one in particular is Steve and Susie Clark have recently bought a house in the York neighborhood. They've wanted to move into a more neighborhood area. That's the place that they could afford and the house that came open for them. But what's cool is, before they're fixing it all up for themselves, Steve has been working like a mad dog, designing a wood-fired pizza oven. He's got all these plans online, and he's building it, guess where? In his front yard. So he's designing this wood-fired pizza oven in his front yard, and he's going to his neighbors and saying, I'm going to finance this, but I want you to help me build it, because I want this corner that we live on to be a meeting place for our community. That's, that's the kind of thinking I'm talking about. Using some resources, time, money, ingenuity, creativity, to build community, to, to be a blessing to the place in which we live. I think that's an awesome, awesome story. And Steve and Susie, by doing this, are resisting the individualism and selfishness of our isolated American culture that we live in. So that's economics. What about vocation? The world tells us that work is just a necessary evil. I don't know how many bumper stickers I've seen with the I'd rather be fill in the blank, right? Or maybe the the dumbest one, the little spiky-haired kid urinating on the word work. (laughs) Uh, I wonder what they think about their job. How do we resist the idea that work is just something we do to earn money, to spend on ourselves, so that we can do what we really want to be doing? As disciples, we're called to resist that view of work and exchange that view for seeing vocation as a calling. Seeing our work, our investment in vocation as an opportunity to bless other people. That does not mean, (laughs) by the way, that you might have a horrible job. You might have a horrible boss. I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm not saying that every day should be a bed of roses. Um, and maybe you should look for a different place where you can actually thrive. I'm just saying that. But 
overall, our vocation should be something that brings joy to other people. So no matter if we're running a business or cleaning bedpans or working for a nonprofit or driving a bus, there is a way to work that blesses us, that blesses other people, and always seeks to honor God. I want to say something quite clearly that might seem like a, a, a paradox. We are created from the very beginning to have joy in creation and to work. If we, we know we might be off about how we view work if we see those things in opposition. We need to resist the idea that joy and vocation are opposites. Let's get more personal. How about our bodies? Besides money, this is one of the most sensitive, charged areas in the Western world. We nearly worship our bodies and our sexuality. The world would have us believe that we are not fully fulfilled if we are not sexually active when we want, how we want, with who we want. Resistance in the fear of the Lord means fidelity in marriage and holy celibacy in singleness. It means offering healthy, healthy same-sex relationships, which means deep, intimate friendships, rather than assuming the only option for a person attracted to someone of the same sex is sex. We don't need to be a people who are standing with mean signs yelling at people how God hates them because that's not true. What we need to do is be creative about offering positive solutions. When do we talk deeper about same-sex friendships that are deeper and intimate? How many of us have those kinds of relationships? I think we all could grow in, in growing deeper friendships. But I think that part of being... Um, faithful in this area of being uh, holy resistors in our culture is to offer some better solutions than what are currently out there. We could go on and talk about how we use food and drink, how many of us are obsessed with the way we look to other people, but I think we all get the picture. Holy resistance is daily resistance. It is always countercultural, And what it really comes down to is a holy resistance in how you and I view life. Is this my life? Or do I believe like Paul that because of my sin, I am destined for death? <laughs> Through Jesus, I am bought for a price and I am no longer my own. I now live on borrowed time for God. I live to thrive and to bless others. This whole thing about my life not being my own, I'm bought with a price, that is not like now life's going to suck because Jesus saved you and you've got to do all these hard things. Suck it up till you die. Do you know the life that Jesus wants to give us is abundant and joyful? You know how good it feels when you bless someone else? That's what we're designed for. Jesus offers us, hey, get over your guilt and shame. I've made you a new creation. Now get out there. Be a blessing to the world. This is good news, not, not bad news. Michael and Elizabeth Holland have been part of our body for a number of years, almost since the very beginning. They've been married just over a year. They have jobs. They rent a, a condo in town. And they, like so many of us, 
don't really lack much that they actually need. They're comfortable. But what you may not know is that Michael and Holland are, or Michael and Elizabeth Holland are currently going through the training process of becoming foster parents. Why are they doing this? They're doing this because they're resisting the trend to live solely for themselves. They are willing at this point in their lives to share their time, to share their home, to share their emotional energy and their lives with children that they know all too well are all around us in this community that are hurting. And like Shipra and Puak, they are ordinary people on a road to doing extraordinary things. And the good news, I think, about that story, about Julie and Mark's story, about Steve and Susie's story, about Shipra and Puak's story, is that anyone can resist the world. Anyone can choose obedience to God. You don't need a certain number of midichlorids in your blood to pull this one off. You don't need superpowers. You simply need to begin trusting in Jesus, the one who resisted the world of death by emptying himself and through his own obedience, not his superpowers. It's why I had Philippians 2 read earlier. Jesus, part of the Godhead, emptied himself, did not regard equality with God as something to be utilized, as something to be held onto. When he became incarnate, he's still fully God, but he's also fully human. And he says, I am resisting the use of this privilege. And I'm leading the way, first by taking care of your sin problem, then by giving you an example that this can be done through obedience to the Father, not through power, not through force, but by absorbing the worst that evil could give. Through obedience, Jesus won new life for us. So I encourage you, I encourage you to trust and to ask Jesus for that help to obey. Because I'm looking, I'm looking at nearly a hundred life changers right here. You don't have to be more special than you think you are. All right, let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for breathing life into a story that uh, until I was studying it just a couple weeks ago, seemed like, Oh, God, how do I preach this? Thank you for breathing life into um, a story of simplicity, uh, of ordinariness, and of risky obedience. I almost wish it was more spectacular. Uh, Then I could say it excludes me from having to do anything about it. I could say I'm not talented enough or smart enough or strong enough. But you don't give us that escape route in this story. I'm thankful, Lord, for the dignity that you show each person. Calling us audaciously salt and light to this world. You never say, try and become salt and light. You never say, take a class to learn how to be salt and light. You simply call us what you call us. Lord, help us, each one of us, to see that we can trust you, that you are trustworthy, and that through obedience, oh, Lord, 
you can do great things. And I pray, Lord, for this church as a whole, that you would help us to believe that as a, as a unit, as a body. Give us vision, Lord. And I pray for each man, woman, and child here. That you would help us see where you're calling us to obedience and deeper trust in you, Lord. Amen.